You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. He hit my hands. Nobody has ever hit my hands. I've never heard of this one. Look at those hands. Are they small hands? <laughs> and he referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee you. Right. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. I... <clears throat> You've just downloaded an episode of Sectarian Review, a monthly podcast of reviews, cultural criticism, and opinion. Contributors to Sectarian Review try to think broadly and seriously, but also a little frivolously about the life of the mind in contemporary America. We've read a lot, watched a lot, and thought a bit about the world, and we're here to talk about it. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, but don't hold those guys too responsible for what we say here. If something we say gets you thinking, send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page where you can post comments, reactions, and ideas for future episodes. Now sit back, relax, and hopefully enjoy another episode of Sectarian Review. As I type this introduction, I'm listening to Beethoven's Piano Sonata No. 8, and it seems to fit my mood. A couple of months ago, I was rather on fire to tackle the Trump problem in American culture, and let's face it, it was kind of fun back then, wasn't it? Now, however, my appetite for destruction has left me, and I approach this topic in a manner for which the mournful opening bars of the Eighth Sonata seem appropriate. I guess I should be clear from the outset. I don't foresee this episode spending much time debating whether Trump is worthy of support or not. I find myself as someone who has to manage anxiety anyways, truly depressed by what I see in Trump's rise to real political power. The racial divisiveness, the economic irresponsibility, the lack of a moral compass, these things I take as a given when talking Trump. So I'm not sure what to expect from this discussion. I have some questions for us to talk around, but I think what I really want It's the kind of comfort that comes from commiserating with some really smart people. Let's get to that. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Sectarian Review. This is our seventh official episode, and it's called Trumpism. Um, We have a new uh, guest host here today. Uh, His name is Jordan Poss. Uh, Jordan, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little about your background. I think you're going to add a really interesting angle to our discussion today. Uh, Well, we'll see about that. Yeah, my name is Jordan Poss. I am a adjunct instructor of history at Greenville Technical College in Greenville, South Carolina. I have an MA in uh, European history from Clemson University, and uh, yeah, I, I, I it's kind of hard for me to say exactly what my specialty is. Uh, I, I picked a master's topic that I could that would kind of allow me to straddle a couple of fences at the same time, which um, is both uncomfortable and fun. Uh, if you get my drift. Uh, I call myself a military historian because that tends to be where I spend a lot of my time, academically speaking. Uh, sort of um, done a lot of study and work on uh, the world wars, World War II in particular, uh, Vietnam, the American Civil War, and uh, French and Indian War is another kind of growing area of interest for me, but um, particularly uh, ancient Rome, uh, Anglo-Saxon England, which is actually what I did my master's work on. Uh, so I kind of naturally inclined in a more David Grubbs direction. 
I dabble in a whole lot of areas. Well, we're all dabblers. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah. I like dabblers more than almost anybody else. And so oh, yeah. uh, I'm really, really happy. Jordan uh, reached out to the podcast as a, as a listener and, and suggested he would be interested in uh, joining sometime, and I was really, really happy that he did that. And I want to encourage more people to do that. This is uh, kind of what makes it fun for me, um, that kind of dialogue extending <laughs> beyond my computer here. so, um, And we are uh, joined by the triumphant return of uh, Ed Simon. Uh, Ed, <laughs> uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself. Remind us who you are. It's been a while. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at Lehigh University in English. Uh, and my field is primarily uh, 17th century literature and religion in the wider Atlantic world. Um, but I've uh, recently done a little bit more in terms of the long genealogy of some of those uh, theological and cultural concepts in terms of how they relate to the contemporary day and kind of wider things. So I've, I've increased my dabbling, I suppose you might say. <laughs> well, Ed is a little, um, I think, uh, too uh, nice. Uh, he, he actually does a lot, and, and he's actually written a really interesting article for the History, History News Network uh, website about Trumpism. And I, I hope we get to talk about that at some point. But you also run a really cool and interesting yeah. online magazine called America. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. It's uh, called americamagazine.com. So it's said without the A at the beginning, very rotally. So like America is how it's pronounced. Uh, and uh, the whole idea behind America Magazine is it's sort of a an outlet for people who are interested in patriotism but made uncomfortable by it. Maybe sort of for like <laughs> agnostics about America, if that, if that makes sense. Um, and uh, you can be checked out at americamagazine.org. We get a lot of people who are trying to go to the uh, excellent Jesuit magazine, americamagazine.org. <laughs> we are not the Jesuit magazine. We are, we are America. Uh, but we try to sort of publish things that deal broadly with sort of Americana history and culture issues uh, from what is, I would have hoped, a more obviously progressive uh, perspective, though some people seem to be confused by the name. Uh, you get some interest not in on the joke, but uh, hopefully some of your listeners will, will be a little bit more hip to what it is that we're up to. Well, I'm all about diversity in uh, ideology here, so uh, I, I, if someone makes a mistake about this thing, I'm totally okay about that. Um, and also, I, I, the one thing I appreciate about that, your, your, the America Magazine, is it's just got the perfect amount of snark to it that makes me, oh, well, thank you. Makes you me very to, happy. So. You try to keep the snark quotient at just the right amount. <laughs> you do a good job there. So, uh, yeah, check that out if you have time. Uh, as soon as you hang up, listen to this. So, um, a couple announcements, I guess. Uh, for those of you who listen to this and other uh, podcasts in the Christian Humanist Radio Network, uh, probably noticed we had a couple of issues with our uh, service. Uh, we've transitioned to a new server, basically, and we think it's all taken care of now. But if you were having trouble uh, downloading your uh, podcast that you're used to seeing, you might want to unsubscribe and resubscribe, and it'll re-grab. That's what I had to do on my own iPod. So um, that this is uh, my suggestion to you. I think we're all okay now. Everything seems to be working just fine, and, and hopefully that little hiccup won't have cost us too much loyalty uh, from, from you all. So, um, And uh, speaking of loyalty, once again, I would like to um, invite more people. Uh, Jordan, bringing this military historian background, 
to this uh, podcast is really uh, exciting to me, and um, I would love to get economics economics uh, in here. I'd love to get uh, people from all sorts of disciplines. Uh, so if you have a um, uh, an interest in, in speaking with matters, uh, go ahead and contact us either through the Facebook page. We have that uh, Gmail uh, uh, account, uh, sectarianreview at gmail dot com. So uh, give us a uh, uh, a shout out, and we will definitely call back. Call back. So, um, and also, if you're not subscribing on iTunes, uh, if you're just sort of streaming this, uh, it helps us, I guess, if you subscribe on iTunes. And Nathan's the guy who's always pitching for the five star reviews. Uh, if you think we deserve a five star review, that would be awesome. But if uh, uh, if you would just sign up and give us some sort of feedback there, I think more people would discover the podcast and uh, make it even more fun that way. So. Um, Let's get on to the episode proper now that that's all done here. So I'm going to pitch the first question over to Ed. Um, Ed, the original title of this episode was Angry White Males. I was doing about that one for a long time. And Todd Pedler over there at the Book of Nature podcast and sometimes contributor right here uh, talked me into calling it Trumpism because uh, he said that's really what you want to do anyway. Why not just do it? Uh, in my mind, the two concepts intersect really heavily though. So what are we learning about American masculinity and whiteness through all of this? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, well, I guess so two-pronged thing uh, to say here. Uh, the, the first is that I think uh, the phenomenon of Trumpism has revealed something that the funding class should have been maybe more aware of over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years than they were. So there's a little bit of this kind of, um, you know, if you, there's that scene in Casablanca where he says, I'm, I'm gambling, gambling, I'm shocked when he's in the casino. And I think that it's not a surprise that this sort of like rhetoric that has been used by the far right in this country since Richard Nixon, basically, since the Southern strategy is now bearing fruit in this particular way. So I guess what we're learning is something that should have been obvious before. The second thing I think that we need to keep in mind about Trumpism is maybe a sobering thought is that Trumpism may be more problematic than Trump himself. Because I hope that Trump loses uh, in the primary, and I hope that he loses in the general. I think that goes without saying. But I do worry that this has identified fault lines in our culture and society that are hard to come back from. And I think that the, uh, the rhetoric that is now perhaps sort of repressed or implied or dog-whistled in the past is now so overt, and especially the increasing violence is kind of a genie that's hard to put back in that bottle. So uh, I worry about where it bodes the future of American discourse and politics in America. I guess I think that's maybe what we've kind of learned, but it's a lesson that we should have been aware of earlier. Not the people. Um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead there, uh, Ed. Sorry. No, I mean, I, I certainly think there have been plenty of um, writers and theorists that have identified what's problematic in, in, uh, in the rhetoric of the right in this country for the past 20, 30 years. Uh, but it seems like the more mainstream media uh, is surprised by this, and I think that the establishment leadership of the Republican Party, who is sort of feigned surprise, uh, definitely shouldn't be, because I think that the sort of uh, the sort of thing was inevitable sooner or later. 
Um, I, I I kind of agree with that. And you mentioned in the article you wrote, um, Trumpism is a sign that faith in the American civil religion may be collapsing. You you mentioned early on in that about the uh, the rallies becoming violent, and the thing that's probably most disturbing about that violence, it isn't just that it's violence, but that it is pretty much targeted at minorities who happen to be yeah. <laughs> in attendance at those yeah. rallies, whether they're doing anything or not, right? Well, and there, right? Like they're not, I mean, I'm going to say they're not even protesters. It shouldn't matter if they're protesters, obviously, but it's people who are just in attendance, right? Right, yeah. right. Um, well, I have a follow-up question, but I want to see what Jordan thinks right away here. Uh, I tend to agree with most of that, and if if I had anything to say to sort of uh, modify or amend it, I would. It would really just be a minor detail of uh, kind of looking a little bit more beyond the sort of modern left-right spectrum. I would tend to see this in sort of as sort of just the latest iteration of a very long sort of American tradition of this kind of violent populism, and and populism always tends to incline in that direction. Uh, this this morning I mentioned the the podcast and our topic to one of my colleagues here, and uh, the the first thing he said was Huey Long from Depression Era Louisiana, and of course Huey Long is on the opposite end of the political spectrum, um, politically speaking, from Donald Trump. You know, if you if you can even really place Trump anywhere on a political spectrum, um, he seems to be a incoherent opportunist to me, or at least you know that's my own perception. I mean, anytime he's pressed on an issue, he te he seems to kind of squish in about five different directions, and then people vote for him anyway. So so to me, the uh, the really dangerous trend with Trumpism is not not necessarily who it's putting in power, but that this is you know, continuing a trend and making it sort of the norm that this is how power is negotiated, that this is how power is sought and sought after. And, and by that I mean by anybody, that, that, that anyone of any political persuasion would be seeking it in this way. And of, and of course that's not just limited to the rhetoric, but, you know, now we're seeing occasional actual physical violence at some of uh, Trump's rallies, um, bo both by supporters and by some of Trump's own people as we've as we've seen recently um, a professor of mine at Clemson under whom I studied uh, World War II history he's emeritus faculty now but uh, a few years ago uh, excuse me a few weeks ago at our in our own uh, sort of hometown newspaper here the Greenville News uh, he published a op-ed in which he made a litany of comparisons between the rise of Hitler uh, out of the kind of economic and social situation of Weimar Germany after World War One, and the sort of situation that we find ourselves in and attracting the kind of support that uh, Trump has attracted. And at, at the time that he published that op-ed, you know, as much as I respect him, and I very deeply respect this professor of mine, um, I, I was inclined to think, you know, that was a little alarmist, a little bit, you know, a lot of the comparisons seemed rather superficial to me. Uh, but I've had to kind of reorient myself a little bit ever since we started to see some actual thuggery. Um, you know, the, the old fascistic uh, Mussolini phrase of taking off the white gloves, you know, the language of actual physical struggle, and not just political struggle. Um, and not to, not to steal the thunder from our second question here in the show notes, but um, th this is, you know, you know, something that worries me is that 
this this kind of thing could potentially appeal across party lines, you know, especially, you know, no matter who it is on the political spectrum we're talking about, uh, seeking this way of attaining and maintaining power. And, that, and I do feel that that's a worrisome trend. Um, I agree totally, and, and I feel like you're getting it sort of what I was hoping to follow up with, is that I think in some ways it's kind of easy, and, and I don't think it's wrong, to see Trump as a creation of sort of the talk radio um, audience, and, and that which is largely a right-wing American phenomenon. Um, Air America didn't take for some reason, right? You know, and, and so the, the, that kind of sphere of the media has largely been left to the right. And but I do feel like there's something because he doesn't particularly fit their that belief system and in, in the things that he's demonstrated in his life. There is something somehow transcendent about the left-right. Uh, split in this country that I think is even kind of more troublesome, and I feel like he's a creation of more than just a right wing way of doing media, but he's a way a creation of a way of doing media uh, in America and, and the rhetoric yeah. that we use. And so I had posed a question on our Facebook page that I got I think got blown off, <laughs> maybe rightfully so, but uh, uh, like it just kind of. A terrifying thought occurred to me. What if he had decided to run as a Democrat? I mean, that we theoretically could have done that. You know what I mean? Um, his, his affiliation. Like, what would have been different about that? And I don't know that it would have been the same kind of thing. But I do think that he speaks to a kind of populism that doesn't fit neatly within party lines anymore. And, and I wonder. Um, this is the dread that Ed is uh, expressing about. Trumpism being worse than Trump. <laughs> well, I think what it is, though, and why it, it's yeah. the partisan issue or from the question of political parties, uh, is that he specifically to an aggrieved sense of white resentment. I think this gets into the angry white man thing, and it's why he couldn't run as a Democrat. I mean, it's true that economically he departs from Republican Party orthodoxy all the time. I mean, he... Uh, arguably on some positions economically, is even left-wing, right? mm -hmm. or certainly to the left of many in the mainstream of the Republican Party. Uh, and I think that there, I think it's kind of uh, a simplistic comparison to make, but some people have said that he's speaking to some of the same concerns that Bernie Sanders supporters find attractive in Sanders. Obviously, they're very different candidates, and they have a very different platform, but I do think that the economic reality of a country that has suffered horribly in the recession has seen that recession supposedly get better, but not get better for most people, that that message is going to be attractive. But Sanders' message is one that is clearly based across races, ethnicities, religions, and so on, whereas Trump's focus is on demonizing particular ethnic and religious groups. And I just don't think that could be attractive anywhere other than right now in the Republican Party of 2016, at least in a mainstream sense. But I think we can't separate his creation out from the Republican establishment and perfectly fine kind of dog-whistling those issues of racism and sexism and homophobia and so on for so long. Uh, but then when somebody starts speaking an economic language that's a little bit more attractive, kind of like free market, laissez-faire, libertarian orthodoxy in the Republican Party, that he catches on really quickly, right? And I, I think that you can't let the GOP off the hook for that. 
and I don't. <laughs> I don't. Um, but my bigger fear is that this is something, and I guess it gets to the next question again. We'll sort of hint at that that this is something that's going to that spills out of the control of our two-party system. Um, yeah. And and I think Definitely. that we're looking at a potential realignment of some sort here. And 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 anytime that kind of thing happens, it's kind of scary, frankly. Maybe it's a good thing that that happens, but it's actually that big of a change is a little scary. I mean, I think it definitely signals the end of the Republican Party in one way or the other. I mean, either he, uh, you know, does not take the nomination because of the contested convention, in which case I'm sure he runs as a third-party candidate, but also that grossly lowers their level of legitimacy if in any way looks like they've taken this from him in some sense. Or he wins the nomination, in which case he remakes the party in his own image, and I don't know what happens to moderates, and I use moderates in scare quotes if they go off into a third party or whatever. But one way or the other, I think we're seeing the unraveling uh, of the Republican Party, and you know where that goes could be any number of directions, uh, some of which are not necessarily good. Mm -hmm. Jordan, are there like, uh, yeah. I, I, don't, I know that you want to say something, but are there like historical parallels that come to mind uh, for you as a historian here? No, no. This this is something that I've considered at least at least in the broad strokes. And again, I'm not a Americanist. I I do teach it. I I teach U.S. history every semester, and so this is something I've had to consider. And uh, some some things have jumped out at me and struck me. Uh, and I'm just a little afraid sometimes of making these kind of um superficial comparisons. I have seen recently a few uh, kind of interesting comparisons from people uh, about some of the kind of inter-party strife and some of the political splits prior to the American Civil War. And that's that's partly interesting because there, obviously, you have at least um, superficially the the race issue in a very different way, but uh, kind of rearing its head again. But there, right before the Civil War, you had a uh, split along regional lines within the Democratic Party, which is one of the things that allowed Abraham Lincoln to win in the 1860 election. And I actually just this morning read um, Ed's History News Network uh, article, the piece that he had written about Trumpism. And it he made just kind of an aside in the article, but it, it really struck me that this is kind of unimaginable that this is the party of Abraham Lincoln that all of this kind of Trumpist drama is taking place in now. I mean, you uh, you hold up Abraham Lincoln against Trump, and there's, there's that line in Hamlet... Uh, Hyperion to a satyr, right? Uh, it's it's interesting to see how far down it has come. Uh, a friend of mine who's actually getting his uh, PhD at uh, Penn State right now, I, I think I saw him make a comparison recently uh, to, I want to say it was the 28 election. And again, understand, you know, uh, fear of making these kind of superficial comparisons here. Uh, and I don't know much beyond this, but what I read in his uh, kind of blog post that he made about it. But I believe that the twenty it was the twenty eight Republican convention where uh, I want to say that they went through over a hundred rounds of voting and nominations before they actually had a final nominee for the presidential ticket. Uh, and of course, that went to um, Hoover. Uh, Coolidge did not want to run again for a variety of both political and personal reasons. Uh, so those are those are two comparisons um, that do leap to mind, 
And I've seen a couple of people noting, possibly hyperbolically, but there, I think there could be something to it, that this is pro very probably the most divided a political party has been uh, since the Civil War era. Uh, one other thing here, too, and, and again, I hope I'm not making some sort of um, embarrassingly superficial uh, comparison here. That's the uh, subtitle of the this, Democratic uh, Populist. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, that's that's one of the things that I do appreciate about the whole Christian humanist project is you know the the uh, you know am amateurs openly trying to openly and honestly trying to approach new subjects. I I try to do that pretty regularly myself. Uh, but this one last thing here, there there actually was a third party called the Populist Party or the People's Party that had a kind of flash in the pan effect in uh, the political scene. And it's interesting because the populists of the 1890s, um, and I have students occasionally try to ask this, they're, they're trying to sort it out in their own minds um, according to our, our own, you know, our own situation now. But politically speaking, the populists of that era don't neatly map onto our own modern sort of left-right priorities. Um, uh, in some ways, they would definitely conform to our sort of. Uh, or at least our image of the kind of typical Trumpkin, uh, very very nativistic among other things. And this is this is an ex a comparison I did explicitly make just this semester in, in going over this movement. Uh, but very nativist. There's a lot of um, Italian and Eastern European immigration to the United States during that period, and uh, that uh, kind of stereotypical South Park, they took our jobs kind of thing is uh, very much on the minds of the populists who tend to be overwhelmingly uh, a rural farmers movement but the the nativist sympathy or the nativist uh, inclination there is you know th th there's lots of Italians lots of Slavs lots of Jews uh, you know people who are in the minds of the populists not like us so to speak uh, even the Irish who are continuing to immigrate in pretty large numbers are um, not exactly white according to their racial categories of the time which which again is very foreign to us um, as, as widely celebrated as Irish culture is thanks in, thanks in part to things like uh, St. Patrick's Day and of course the uh, endless stream of Boston centric crime movies but uh, the populists were a large enough movement to form their own very powerful third party and eventually run a coalition presidential ticket with the uh, Democratic William Jennings Bryan as their candidate. and um, Bryan is in many ways a very very uh, complicated and fascinating figure. I mean, uh, right here in Greenville you've got Bob Jones University, which actually has student organizations uh, named in honor of Bryan, uh, largely because of his very famous attachment to uh, fundamentalist Christianity, as you know, ex eventually exemplified by the Scopes trial in the 20s. But at the same time, if you look at William Jennings Bryan's priorities and his political positions, uh, he is not what we would typically think of as right-wing, uh, at least not nowadays in the period. Uh, at least not nowadays in a period in which the uh, conservative movement is very definitely kind of libertarian-flavored. Uh, as, especially as the result of uh, the work of guys like William F. Buckley, uh, Friedrich Hayek, who had a bit of a Glenn Beck-inspired renaissance a few years ago. 
So while he uh, tends to get classified as more right-wing nowadays, his, his actual policies are much more complicated and less stereotypically right-wing. Um, his candidacy eventually led to a near collapse of the Democratic Party. Uh, the the sort of traditionally Democratic voters were very unhappy with the populist movement sort of hijacking their party because the populists really, uh, people with populist interests really only formed one part of the typical Democratic ticket. Um, and at the same time, the populists were not particularly happy about having to share a candidate with people whose interests did not closely align with their own, particularly those immigrants, again, who tended to vote more Democratic for a variety of reasons. A, uh, and a large uh, movement that's gaining a lot of momentum at the time is the Prohibitionist movement, um, which you know crosses kind of party lines at that time, but is a t- kind of typically progressive measure to improve society. And of course for a lot of the German and especially uh, Irish and Italian immigrants who are tending to vote Democratic, uh, alcohol is a, a very standard, important part of their culture. And the kind of um, puritanical American insistence on either strict control or just abstinence from alcohol is offensive to them. And the populace may or may not have been in favor of that, but it's just one more kind of factor adding stress and causing this uh, strife and division within the Democratic Party at the time. So all of this sort of helped add up to a... um, you know all, All of these sort of stresses and divisions within the Democratic Party and this weird... Democrat populist coalition ticket, uh, prob- very probably part of the reason that William McKinley won in a pretty big landslide at the time. Um, curiously, speaking of right wingers, uh, Karl Rove actually has a uh, book about the 1896 election out, um, which I haven't read, would, but would probably be interested in reading sometime. So those are those are just a couple of things that immediately jump out at me, and again, I hope they're not um, too superficial, but I think the parallels at least are somewhat there. Um, but again, you've got a very staunch movement of the people, you know, the populists, and um, populism as a movement, again, almost always privileges us. Uh, us at the expense of them, right? The outsider, the other. Uh, Ed, in your... Uh, History News Network piece, I think you linked to a uh, piece by Umberto Eco, um, and I think that just nails at least several of the trends of the current kind of populist wave under Trump, particularly in having to have a external enemy to kind of um, focus your anger about current woes upon. Uh, not having somebody who is, you know, a cause of some of our troubles, but rather the cause of our troubles at this time. So, you know, if, if uh, we can just, you know, punish the Bolsheviks or get the bourgeoisie or eliminate the kulaks or, you know, build a wall, uh, everything will sort of automatically correct itself under our kind of renewed system. Um, I don't know. What, what do you all think about that? I think that's, uh, I think that's very true that there's a, a sense in which um, Trumpism, but then... Fascism, which is what the Echo article is about, uh, more generally, and uh, I come down in a pretty particular way on that question of is Trumpism a type of fascism or not. Uh, but I do think that 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 focus of demonizing a particular group 
uh, is certainly one of the most troubling hallmarks of both of those things. And something that uh, Echo, it's, a, it's an essay for listeners aren't familiar with it, called uh, 13 Ways of Looking at a Black Shirt uh, by Umberto Echo. And it's a, it's a fantastic kind of diagnostic tool for looking at things or phenomena or social movements that could be considered authoritarian or demagogic or, or totalitarian or fascistic or whatever. And I think one of the things is, and at the risk of sounding like I'm sick of analyzing Trump, which I imagine is kind of an impossible path, <laughs> or sick of analyzing his many millions of supporters or whatever, <laughs> uh, there's definitely this awareness of having been uh, screwed over by the economic order in some way, right? Uh, and a lot of those people aren't necessarily wrong that they've been screwed over by the, the conditions of the free market system uh, at our current point in time, and certainly by this kind of like orthodox capitalist kind of understanding of how market, the market is supposed to work. But trying to understand that it's this impersonal, abstract system that is screwing you over is uh, harder than just saying, no, it's because... You know, immigrants are taking your jobs, or Muslims are doing this, or whatever. You can put, you know, a face on these things in a way that the more sociological but more correct understanding of how you're being screwed over just isn't perhaps as emotionally satisfying to some people. Right. I suppose at a certain extent, but that's always been, you know, that's one of the things that Echo makes a point of is that fascism is, to an extent, the politics of resentment. And the politics of being made to feel that a world which was formerly yours is now being unfairly taken away from you. And I think, I mean, the whole phrase, right, make America great again, is kind of a Jeremiah in that direction, or like a perverse Jer Jeremiah, I suppose, in that direction. Yeah. I, um, uh, you know... I guess that's another. It's an opportunity. If you're a, a psychologist, come on the show. We could talk psycho. We can psychoanalyze people like that. That would be great. Um, but I also wonder. Uh, one difference I see in our political moment from the early 20th century. Um, it's one reason I think it's difficult to make these comparisons. Is that we do not have like a strong tradition of radicalism that was totally. You couldn't ignore. You couldn't. Think about politics in the 30s without thinking about radicalism, right? I mean, it was a legitimate uh, stance, and it's been so delegitimized uh, since the Soviet Union. And and now Bernie Sanders has some sort of form of that, right? <laughs> but it's still working pretty well within the system, I think, that, that's that's in place. And without that counterbalance of radicalism, um, I, I wonder. I mean, I, I wonder if that doesn't play into the disenfranchisement. Of uh, formerly uh, of white voters of, of poor white voters that are flocking to Trump because they don't have uh, this political they don't have a political alternative other than the kind of fascist <laughs> um, uh, blaming uh, game of, of immigrants and this is just me thinking out loud. I think one of the things and this is what I tried to argue in my uh, civil religion piece was that um, and at the risk of engaging kind of an outmoded historiography that embraces American exceptionalism as like a legitimate theoretical construct or whatever. I do think that there's some truth to the idea that American civil religion, where we were all found, whether left or right, to a certain understanding of America that was transcendent of ideology, um, has, on the one hand, it prevented um, left-wing radicalism 
uh, from really taking hold, right? Any sort of Marxist absorptions. I mean, there were, of course, mass movements that were very popular at one time, uh, but that tended to be filtered through a more conventionally uh, American kind of understanding. But I, I think that exact same sense of civil religion is also what in part kept mass right-wing fascist movements from taking hold as well. And again, there were you no know, nothing from Davis and the Ku Klux Klan and whatever else that could arguably call, be called fascist. But with a few exceptions, I mean, I can't think of any, I can't think of any mainstream political candidate like Donald Trump who we could convincingly call fascist and not have that be a violation of Godwin's law. <laughs> he to the White House at any point in our history. I mean, I guess Huey Long is somebody that comes to mind, but Huey Long um, not as successful as Trump has been. Or George Wallace has not been as, uh, as far as I can, I can remember, as electorally successful as Trump has been. So this does seem to be um, a unique moment and a troubling moment, obviously, in American history. And I don't wonder, and part of what I was trying to argue in that editorial, was that this embrace of Trumpism could in part be because there's not a convincing left-wing alternative, maybe, but it might also just signal sort of a lack of faith in the American civil religion at this point. Jordan, any thoughts? Yeah, I would tend to agree. Um, having done a little bit of reading on American fascist movements, uh, for instance, the actual native uh, Nazi party that existed in the United States during the 1930s and early 40s. I mean, even even before the you know David Duke era of kind of neo-Nazism, there was this um, sort of hijacked German heritage movement. For uh, for instance, the kind of German American Bund, this uh, kind of immigrants organization that gradually kind of became not only sympathetic toward Nazism but actually openly Nazi. Uh, at least until the United States entered World War II, when it became very rapidly unfashionable to call yourself a Nazi. You can, you can actually find some pretty creepy pictures on Google of uh, some of the sort of American Nazi Party rallies, even in Madison Square Garden, where you've got this almost surreal image of kind of jackbooted American Nazis on stage with this giant, you know, Albert Speer-sized portrait of George Washington, which is just really weird. Uh, but um, this kind of American, you know, actual uniformed paramilitary Nazism never really took off in the United States. Uh, a special problem for that is, was, uh, again, during the war as American troops began to uncover some of the evidence of what the uh, Nazis and the German military had been up to during the war, which, again, th there actually was, just kind of as a side note, there actually was more of an awareness of some of what was going on in Germany to, you know, minorities and the Jews, uh, then we would kind of typically think it was, um, uh, the kind of the intensity was more of the surprise for Americans when they found it, rather than the actual actions themselves. Um, but, but not to give a monocausal explanation, but one explanation, one, one factor among many as to why that kind of, you know, jackbooted uh, fascism never took off in the United States is sort of the overall cult, sort of cultural temperament of the American people. I don't know if I should really, you know, plug a more contentious book, but uh, one of the writers for National Review had a book out a few years ago called uh, Liberal Fascism, which had a uh, rather provocative title. And uh, 
even included, you know, a little smiley face on the cover with a sort of scribbled-on Hitler mustache just for a extra level of provocation there. Uh, but provocation aside, um, liberal fascism is not Goldberg's own concept there. He's rather elucidating something that you can actually find as far back in American politics as Alexei de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Uh, de Tocqueville's phrase was actually soft despotism, um, kind of paraphrased by Goldberg as liberal fascism, you know, li liberal in the lowercase sense of kind of open-handed or generous. Uh, but in Democracy in America, Tocqueville, who was French again, um, as, as some people tend to forget, oddly, uh, he's visiting the United States during this kind of, during this period where there's kind of a nascent democratic uh, upsurge in the young republic. Uh, and of course that democracy kind of comes into its own in the era of uh, Andrew Jackson with the Jacksonian democracy. And you can already see some very typically populist traits there already. Uh, for example, I mean, there's, you know, we're talking about this sort of, um, I hate to use the word xenophobia, but, you know, this kind of uh, animosity toward outsiders or, uh, you know, the, the privileging of us as opposed to them uh, with animosity toward especially the Native Americans, right? The, the famous example being the Cherokee in Georgia. So, you know, the, the populist answer to how to uh, make America great again in the Jacksonian era is to take land from these backward people who are sort of hogging land that could be better used by us. You know, and d despite the Cherokee, you know, living in towns, you know, very fairly, fairly well assimilated, you know, printing newspapers, living in towns, running businesses, interacting with the uh, white population surrounding them, uh, the populist answer for a number of problems at this time is to, again, remove this racially backward people and put the land that they're occupying to better use. And of course Andrew Jackson is justly condemned for kind of, um, I don't want to say caving because he, he did obviously have a lot of sympathy for positions like that, although his, um, his personal attitudes toward Native Americans were more complicated than we tend to remember. But he's justly condemned for going along with that and assisting in making it possible to expel people and for fostering an attitude like that. Uh, but back to Tocqueville's um, observations about American democracy, uh, what Tocqueville saw as a, and he was wrote very admiringly of what he saw in America, but what he saw as kind of a latent temptation of this kind of populist democratic uh, political system was what he again called soft despotism. Uh, which was a danger owing more to the character of the American people, right? Um, where in France you had had absolutist despotism, you know, something that Tocqueville had also written about before, uh, you know, uh, kind of stemming from France's own kind of cultural heritage and its own sort of distinct history. Uh, the United States was prone to a weakness coming from an entirely different direction. And the thing, to, uh, the particular temptation for Americans, as opposed to the French absolutism, or the absolute despotism of the Bourbons, was uh, a soft despotism, a sort of mothering uh, instinct, a sort of overweening urge to, you know, care for someone at the expense of their liberty. This uh, sort of will to gradually move or erode, uh, excuse me, remove or erode freedom in the name of security. And anyway, uh, in Goldberg's book, he sort of reappropriates that and paraphrases it as, again, this liberal fascism, a kind of fascism that is built not upon, you know, 
the uh, hobnailed jackboots and the, the grand Nuremberg rallies, but instead on an instinct to care and deal with people with an open hand. And of course you can take issue with any, any number of things in Goldberg's book, but I find his overall argument uh, fascinating, and, and which essentially boils down to the fact that the kind of Nazism that we're always, wor always worried about is temperamentally unsuited to Americans who will not spring for uniforms and swastikas or stormtroopers goose-stepping in the streets. Uh, as, a, as a similar example, you know, for our, you know, as, as they used to call them, our British cousins, uh, Oswald Mosley uh, was a British fascist during the 1930s and I believe the 40s as well, who had a kind of um, British version of Nazism, complete with the sort of paramilitary uniforms, the sort of Nazi-style rallies, the marches, and things like that. And he would, again, emulate this kind of Mussolini, Hitler style, and the British people laughed at them. Um, he is parodied, I can't remember the name of the character, but Mosley is even parodied in a Jeeves and Worcester novel. And by the same token, that kind of thing is just would probably just be generally laughable among the American people. But back to the present, again, in the, in the style of that sort of fascistic populism that Echo was writing about, in uh, the article we referenced earlier, um, when, when you're giving with this kind of open hand, y you've got to focus on someone, right? And of course, the populist answer is that that someone is going to be us. If anybody stands to benefit from this thing, it's going to be us, people like us. Uh, but what surprises me about all of this is that, again, with uh, Tocqueville's warning of this soft despotism, we've, we've seen a lot of that kind of coming to fruition over many generations now. But with Trump the softness rhetorically has very much gone away um, you know just uh, the, the violence of the rhetoric and I I, <laughs> I don't think that there in in American memory I don't, I don't think there's been a maybe less literate uh, rhetorical strategy uh, that, that I can think of uh, in a major political candidate I mean, to the example we used earlier, William Jennings Bryan was criticized in his own time for using this kind of grotesque graphic imagery in the cross of gold speech, talking about ordinary people being crucified on, the, on this cross of the gold standard. And he was, you know, uh, a number of people were appalled by that imagery. And, you know, flash forward to now and you've got <laughs> Trump, you know, very thinly veiling allusions to the size of his genitalia, you know, on a live television debate. So, so the the softness of Trump's um, soft despotism in, in many ways has been eroded, and instead you've got more of a hard line. We're going to be taking a hard line, especially with the the enemy, the people who are responsible for the state that we're in. The softness comes from the handouts that people expect to get from their great leader, and you know, having come you know more from uh, you know the right myself, you see a lot of criticisms from people who are more kind of classically conservative or uh, libertarian-ish that um, Trump is not a real conservative, and that's entirely true and entirely fair, but it's beside the point. The people who are rallying to him are less interested in his politics and more interested in, you know, kind of, in a way, getting a sort of revenge. Uh, revenge uh, against, you know, whatever enemy you care to supply. But uh, more specifically to, you know, open the hand back toward the people who will be putting him into power. 
Um, I think I slung a lot of mud against the wall there. Do you, th do you think anything of that, any of that has stuck? Uh, or make any kind of sense? It does to me. No, <laughs> I, I, um, I think it does. I um, uh, was thinking a lot while you were talking about um, this open hand concept. And, and, and while you were talking, it occurred to me mm -hmm. that this is not simply an American phenomenon right now. Like, this is a worldwide phenomenon. Like, in lots of formerly, I mean, ostensibly um, civilized countries with long histories of democracy, these, mm -hmm. um, uh, if you don't want to use the word fascist, these, these Trumpist kinds of uh, <laughs> uh, candidates are gaining um, uh, traction. And, and they have largely built the appeal around the same things that Trump has, these immigration issues, um, and uh, and I wonder if we are hitting a point where global capitalism is a kind of a common denominator <laughs> that we need to look at. And I wonder if this is what's compromising the security of the the you know the white male who is now kind of flocking to this uh, uh, kind of brutish kind of rhetoric uh, because it's capturing this anger, helplessness. I think to talk a little bit about Trump's rhetoric, and this goes back to something that Annie had mentioned uh, earlier about sort of who do we lay the responsibility of Trumpism at the door at, right? Like who's responsible for it? And uh, Danny, you, you said something I think was really important when you said that there might be something in our general discourse that lends itself to this type of uh, Trumpian rhetoric. And I think it's, you're, uh, you know, Jordan's absolutely right that when you hear Trump speak, man comes across as subliterate, right? I mean, he's, he's boastful, he's preening, he lambles. But that's precisely, I think, his genius in a weird way, right? Like, he has somehow captured a rhetorical strategy yeah. that speaks so well to people right now that he's like Teflon. He can say anything. It just doesn't stick to him, right? And it's precisely because he's breaking all of these rules of normal political discourse, and it's why so many in the sort of commentary class were flummoxed by him because he wasn't following the traditional narrative. But at some point in the last 20 years, the way in which we've spoken about things outside of politics, maybe, has changed so much that he's been able to like key into that. And some of it comes from talk radio. Some of it comes from sort of the the like wrestling world almost that he's such an enthusiastic part of. So it comes out of social media. It comes out of uh, meme language, out of the 140 characters of Twitter, out of nobody wanting to have substantial or in-depth kind of conversations about things. And I don't want to sound like the sort of buddy-duddy old person I guess I do right now, but I do think that the way in which uh, contemporary discourse happens has changed, and he is perfectly attuned to that, and he's able to, I don't know if he's manipulating it or it's just fortuitous for him, uh, but he's perfectly built for that kind of world. And it's notably a world where it's not even that the truth doesn't matter, because politicians and people campaigning have obviously always lied about things and gotten away with it, but it's that he's able to construct his own reality that is completely different from objective reality, and even when this is pointed out to people, it's not only that they don't care, but that they congratulate him for it. And it's like some sort of weird <laughs> relativist ultimate 
postmodern political rhetoric or whatever. And I think what it is is, you know, over the past 15 years, you know, there's that famous um, interview with Ron Susskind where an unnamed source in the Bush administration, uh, the George W. Bush administration said, we make our own reality. And there was some truth to that, but they made their own reality in maybe a more polite way. Now Trump is making his own reality <laughs> in an entertaining and brash way. And I think we shouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. at that combination of disregard for the truth on one hand and the spectacle, sort of like the Bordian spectacle or whatever Trump is, combines into this kind of perfect storm of uh, noxious, dangerous populism. I, um, you know, the, my, my kind of grounding, you know, intellectual approach is kind of with the New York intellectuals in the mid-20th century. And, and what you're talking about reminds me of uh, uh, Dwight McDonald's ranting against, uh, the, you know, the middle brow and, and that sort of thing. And I feel like for so long, I mean, I guess this is a, a kind of banal anti-intellectual complaint I'm making here, um, that we've kind of rejected... Um, difficult art for that which is easy, <laughs> and, and we end up with something like reality TV. And, and and Trump is sort of like a master of that form, and I think he's recognized that our political process is nothing more than reality TV. And, and he's playing, he's gaming it like those people do on Survivor. And, and this is why he sort of uh, approaches the rhetoric the way he does, uh, that whole simple thing like I'm not here to make friends like one of those guys always say uh, I mean that's exactly what Trump's um, re resorts to in his in his rhetoric and so I feel like we're at a moment you mentioned postmodernism Ed I feel like we're at a moment where our entertainment and our ostensibly serious commentary have melded into one thing and all of the kind of economic pressures that uh, drove has have driven our news industry in this country for so many decades not making it more entertaining uh, over quality and truth giving uh, I think what you end up with is someone who realized that we've just been putting on a reality TV show all this time and a reality TV star is now <laughs> destroying a political party yeah and I, I think it would be um, that in and of itself is disturbing enough right the fact that he's able to then utilize that in the service of pretty reprehensible ideology, you know, I guess if he had if he had great politics, then I wouldn't I wouldn't be as upset. But he doesn't, and uh, but I, I do think there's something to be said for I think there's something to be said for the fact that the the rhetoric that he's putting out there in and of itself, I mean, the style of speaking and, and the ways in which he's able to play the media, that is problematic in and of itself enough, but it's also something that exists whether he's there or not, right? That's where our culture has gotten to at this point. And I think your comparison to reality television is absolutely correct. I mean, Trump has intuited that it's more useful to be interesting than it is to be correct or moral, and he's reaping the benefits of that system. And it's a, it's a rotten sort of ideological system that this whole country is part of right now, bluntly. Yeah, um, that was kind of the third question. Uh, we've already sort of uh, handled it pretty well, uh, uh, but I do want to kind of step back a little bit to the uh, a previous question. I think we could do more with with the political the idea of political realignment. Um, I think if nothing else, I mean I don't think anyone expected Bernie Sanders to win that nomination uh, on the Democratic side, 
and I mean, doesn't look like he will, um, but if nothing else, he is showing a form of populism on the left uh, that looks significantly different than a populism than the populism that's popular right now on the right. But um, what would a political realignment look like with our two-party system? <laughs> this is uh, like it, it would seem to me that it would take much longer than one election cycle for this to happen. And, and I, I'm mm -hmm. just so like baffled as to what this might actually look like. I remember when Bush was reelected, when he beat Kerry, um, Pat Buchanan, I believe it was, predicted at the time that you're going to see a civil war within the Republican Party now because of there's a, a kind of, I think his argument was there's a kind of conservative that saw Bush as uh, too big of a heavy-handed uh, it wasn't libertarian enough for that kind of wing of the government of the of the conservative uh, movement, and so he was looking at it from that end. But I think he turned out to be sort of right <laughs> about that that prediction. With, with that with that election, you saw the beginnings maybe of uh, of a political realignment that Trump has kind of put into hyperspeed. But do you guys have any idea what it might even look like? I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think. Um... Sanders is an interesting example because I maintain that in running on socialism, like a democratic socialist, that's really his brand more than his ideology. Uh, because, you know, in any substantial kind of policy way, if you just look at how the votes went when they were both uh, in Congress, uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are more similar than they're not. Right? But the, the conversation has him as a radical. Uh, and it's interesting that he's run with this sort of um, mantle of socialism. He doesn't run away from it, and that's normally one of like the most pointless things you could have associated with you in American politics. And he seems to be doing really well with it. So I think that speaks to the possibility of a realignment within the Democratic Party, because he certainly seems to have what is perceived to be, uh, and not necessarily inaccurately, as a more business-friendly kind of bougie liberal wing of the party that was associated with Clinton, Rahm Emanuel, those sort of people, Obama depending on, on who you're asking. And First term, second term. Yeah. Uh, and then I think within the, uh, the Republican Party you seem to have this profound disturbance over the changing nature of the country demographically, blending itself to this emergence of Trumpism. So what I could conceivably see, I think if Trump wins, the primary, and God forbid Michelle Machen wouldn't light candles if he actually wins the general, but all bets are off. I have no idea what that country looks like after that. That is, there's no way to sort of simulate what that world would necessarily look like. I, I think that what we're going to see, though, is increasingly a smaller group of angrier, older white voters in the Republican Party who demographically are just going to be sort of marginalized. I think political opinion in this country and just sort of the ethnic, cultural, and religious makeup of the country does not lend itself to them necessarily winning elections or holding power in the future particularly. Now, that doesn't mean that they might not try and hold on. That doesn't mean that you couldn't have a lot of ugliness in the process that they're trying to hold on. I can actually see ultimately the Democratic Party splitting in two but I think that that would be over the next 10 or 20 years. I think maybe you could have a sort of more left-wing Sanders wing and maybe a more centrist Clintonite wing that's closer to what we used to think of as traditional Rockefeller Republicans 30, 40, 50 years ago. But 
again, you know, prognostication is always always easier to do, I think, in inside. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong. And that's where I could see it sort of headed. Um, I don't know. I, I with our winner take all system. It's so hard for me to imagine anything other than two parties coalescing around that. Like, uh, like I, and so oh, yeah. having the, the, this realignment—that's what's so confusing about what it might look like. Like in a parliamentary system, of course, some Sanders-type people would be so disappointed. They, I could see them falling into the Trump-type people and, and finding these new kind of combinations. But in this kind of winner-take-all system that the our uh, that our constitution calls for. I, I, it's so hard for me to imagine having more than two parties and, and how they divide themselves. I just don't know. And basically, you'd see the Democratic Party split, I think, in the, the two national parties, and the Republican Party would become a heavily regional one that would be located in basically the southeast, uh, and maybe would hold on to some governorships and, and some state legislators and legislatures. Uh, but, but, I mean, assuming that this is the way it goes, I, I think you'd have uh, centrist and a center-left party maybe emerge out of the Democratic Party. But again, if Trump wins, like all, all bets are off with that, and that's a totally different question. Yeah. Jordan, you're the historian. Oh, man. Uh, well, a couple of things immediately come to mind, uh, the first of which is uh, George Washington, who set so many precedents, um, some of which only some of which are still followed. Uh, but his absolute refusal to join or condone parties um, and of course you've got the entire that, that a very lengthy debate regarding what they call factions in the uh, Federalist and Anti-Federalist debates during the Const Constitutional Convention and it's interesting to see uh, the, the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist at the very beginning of the Republic fighting about things and worrying about things that in many cases are some, some of which are coming true um, and of course, we've got historians by us now, so we we know how it turned out. But um, to, to see them arguing about th uh, things and both sides ultimately being prescient um, in different ways, both sides arguing certain things, and both of them, in some strange cases, turning out to be right. I mean, for one example, Patrick Henry uh, was staunchly opposed to, at least for a while, to the adoption of the new constitution. Um, because he viewed it as basically uh, cementing too much power in one kind of looming centralized authority at the expense of the states, uh, the expense of localities. Uh, and he was especially worried about the office of the president. Uh, in my uh, 201 class, the first half of U.S. history, I do a primary source project on the Constitution in which I assign various, you know, pro and con positions, and one of them is a speech, or an excerpt of a speech by Henry, uh, in which he basically poses a thought experiment, saying, you know, we, we've got this office of the president, and the assumption on the part of the Federalists is that, you know, as long as good men are in charge, everything will be okay. But he says, you know, imagine if the office falls to what he calls a man of address, that is, a man who can speak well, a man who can sway audiences. And, I mean, one, one thing that we can definitely say about Trump is that, you know, he may not speak well, but he speaks the language of the people now, you know, this kind of 140-character era of American history. He speaks in a way that is very much suited for our time. And he can sway people despite the often ridiculous things that he says and the often inconsistent message. Uh, 
a historian that I follow on Twitter actually shared something, I, I think from the Washington Post recently, which sort of charted Donald Trump's changing position on abortion, and he had had something like five entirely different and sometimes contradictory positions on abortion within the span of about a week at one point. And he's not lost votes. So so backing up again just a little bit, there's the, the dangers of the parties and there's the dangers of the office of the president that were, you know, in some cases uh, argued or foreseen by the anti-federalists, uh, Henry in particular. And beginning with Andrew Jackson, um, you, you see some of Henry's worst fears coming to fruition. I mean, there have been rumblings about that as far back as the Constitutional Convention itself. This is not... Uh, something that was simply not foreseen, but uh, that you see this kind of strongman or sort of nascent strongman tendency in a number of figures of widely varying political persuasions. I've mentioned Jackson before, um, uh, Lincoln and Grant uh, to a certain extent, and of course, you know, there's even you know the the regional and Civil War and post Civil War drama added as there as well. Uh, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson in particular, who's uh, even to this day a, uh, some sort of conservative bugbear. And understandably so, because uh, Wilson was a unsavory figure in a, a number of ways, even beyond politics. Uh, but with Wilson, um, it brings to mind uh, a, a writer I kind of enjoy uh, reading for his um, vitriol sometimes and his creative phrasing, uh, a guy named Kevin Williamson, who's sort of a libertarian-ish writer. Um, has this has written a lot and talked a lot about this sort of fetishization of the office of the president, and that plays into the sort of um, populist obsession with a strong leader. Uh, not to succumb to Godwin's law again, but you know there's that concept that was very potent in the early 20th century in Germany of the Führerprinzip. You know the Führer or the leader principle, the idea of a strong leader coming in to take charge and get stuff done. Not trusting in uh, uh, traditional or constitutional parliamentary systems, uh, because those are often viewed, at least in the populist mind, as sort of separating the people from power, from separating them from directly expressing their voice, and the expression of that voice is given body in the leader himself. And this is not of a state of affairs that you can really blame on any one person. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I've seen disparate blame games as, you know, as, you know, Bill Clinton, which is, of course, way too recent, or Nixon or LBJ or even FDR, who's another favorite. But we now have a large segment of the population who are looking for a leader who will, again, deal with them. They will deal with us with that open hand and give them, you know, the assistance that they feel that they need. And it, it's almost got this sort of Malthusian aspect to it, that there's this, you know, struggle among the peoples for, for these limited resources, and the leader needs to favor us, right? You know, if, if anybody's going to stand to benefit from this equation, it needs to be us, and this leader can make sure of that. You know, help us, uh, rather than, you know, whether it's you know a particular immigrant group, or the members of a particular religious tradition, which, incidentally, the president has no constitutional power to do anyway. Uh, which, again, is a fine point that does not seem to bother Trump supporters. Uh, but, but as to what this would do to the two-party system, um, I, I am no fan of the two-party system. I would love to see it go away. Uh, but I have no idea what would replace it. 
Uh, there, there have been another a number of ma major um, political party sort of crackups and breakups uh, over the course of American history. One of one of the biggest probably being the breakup of the Whig Party in kind of the 1840s and 50s. And the Whig Party, um, largely forgotten now, was formed largely as an opposition party. Uh, a, a parallel to that would be in that Slate article that uh, we kind of uh, bandied around. Uh, by uh, Will Salatan, who um, is responding to a uh, piece by Ross Douthat. Uh, I don't. I don't think Salatan is being entirely uh, fair to Douthat. I think he doesn't give uh, Douthat enough credit. I, I think Douthat is making a bit more of a nuanced argument than he gets credit for. But uh, I think Salatan is absolutely spot on that the Republican Party has largely rallied for a while now around just being the opposition is being opposed, you know, in principle, uh, to basically anything floated by the Democrats or President Obama. And you see this with the Whigs, which was formed in the 1830s as a oppositional party to Andrew Jackson, and basically anything Jackson uh, or uh, Polk later on down the road, who's nicknamed Young Hickory, right, who's sort of the successor, the spiritual successor to Jackson. Uh, anything Jackson or Polk or any of the Democrats at that time put forward, the Whigs just opposed in principle. And once that tide had kind of gone out, once the Jacksonian period of the Democratic Party was sort of ended, uh, the Whigs no longer had a reason to exist, and they broke up. They lost power. Uh, the, the one thing that they had rallied around was gone, and they collapsed. And so when they originated by kind of uniting in themselves a whole bunch of pretty disparate interest groups. And so with the breakup of the Whig Party, it, it actually lost some people to the Democrats. Uh, it had people go off in other directions. Um, eventually, the, when the uh, Republican Party formed, a lot of Whigs wound up there. Uh, Abraham Lincoln had been a Whig previously. Uh, and you also lose people to some of these kind of oddball third parties, and there were <laughs> a lot of pretty entertaining ones in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. Uh, the most prominent being the Know-Nothings, who um, have some kind of interesting and striking parallels uh, with the sort of Trump Trumpist movement now. Um, uh, I, I one example of that, um, there, there was some kind of weird nativist anti-Catholic rhetoric a couple of weeks ago when the Pope was, and, and you have to take into account the way the news media reports the Pope, uh, he was sort of perceived as having kind of said something sort of opposed to Trump's rhetoric. And and the response from Trump supporters could could very well have, uh, you know, adjusted for language, very well have fit into the rhetoric of the know-nothings back, you know, over 150 years ago. Uh, so so I have no reason to believe that this is what will happen, but what I would, would be interesting to me to see happen is to see both parties split, uh, and again, it, it seems like we're actually heading more towards sort of a reconstituted or sort of new coalescence of, you know, something is going to change, but I don't think it's going to be this kind of large-scale split. But I would love to see increased options like that. Uh, and I'm I'm more familiar with the kind of Republican side of things, so I can probably be more, a little bit more specific there. But, but the uh, libertarian types in the Republican Party who are already pretty... <laughs> grouchy about the direction the Republican Party is headed. You know, they they would have nowhere to go if Trump is uh, the nominee. Uh, the more Burkean types, uh, the more kind of traditional conservatives, uh, social conservatives, um, the non-interventionist conservatives, and you know, who are, you know, 
very, very opposed to another branch, which would be the neocons. Uh, Non-interventionist conservatives would not be at home because Trump has made it very clear uh, that he would take a, you know, aggressive, uh, bombastic stance uh, toward things. You know, I mean, he, he's even talked about you know not just targeting suspected terrorists, but even their families. Uh, which, which is a sublimely creepy moment in American politics. Uh, so, so all the, so all those things taken into account, if Trump ends up ruling the day at the um, uh, in the Republican Party, all of those groups will need to look somewhere else. Uh, and if Trump does not get the nomination, uh, he will take that very large core uh, that y'all were talking about a minute ago—the the kind of uh, disgruntled, disaffected working-class whites—and who knows where they will wind up. Uh, if he doesn't get the nomination, Trump is almost certainly going to cry foul. Uh, he'll do the Andrew Jackson thing and start talking about a corrupt bargain that, you know, the nomination was stolen from him and some sort of shady, you know, smoky backroom dealing. Uh, you know, the the populist mind leaps very readily toward this kind of con uh, conspiratorial mindset and if, you know, uh, not just needing an external enemy, but sometimes an internal enemy as well. So if he doesn't get the nomination, it will have been stolen from him. It will be, you know, the stab in the back theory, and he'll probably take a lot of people with him. Um, I'll end my prognostications with my favorite quote from uh, True Grit, which is, you know, Colonel Stonehill, uh, the, the horse dealer, talking to Matty Ross at one point, you know. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. <laughs> well, that's true. I, that's, I mean, it was a purely hypothetical question. You're right. Um but it is one that I think is worrisome, and I guess the reason it's worrisome is if something like the Tea Party yeah. happens um, for uh, Trump voters, if he doesn't, if he's denied this um, nomination, and I feel like that is a very angry group of organized people, um, and what they do with that organization is to be somewhat. I mean, more than worrisome. I mean, it's not quite terrifying, I suppose, but it's somewhere between there, and. and and, and to me, that's that's what I worry about when I think about um, the ramifications of this. And um, ultimately, I think I wonder. I, I'm thinking out loud, and I have no, I have not thought this through, so I'll just say it. But um, <laughs> particularly on the Democratic side, I mean, the Bernie Sanders supporters, I think that they um, gravitate um, as much towards a figurehead. Uh, as the Trump supporters are, um, and I think what they don't do well is local politics. They don't like take that revolution and actually live it out on a mundane level. Um, it's all big and symbolic and heroic for them, you know. And and I feel like without that sort of day-to-day doll -day work <laughs> of you know county elections and so forth, these kinds of uh, revolutions that supposedly Sanders is starting, I, I don't see actually happening because Bernie Sanders is already an old man. So I think that's an uh, that's an excellent point, and it's one yeah, that I, I, um, I rarely hear made among my group of friends uh, or, or my sort of um, people who I consider to be on the left with myself. There's this sort of uh, very interestingly on-left-wing analysis of how power operates that I sometimes see in the rhetoric of a lot of Sanders supporters, where it seems to be this understanding that if he's elected, he will single-handedly have the power to enact all of these sweeping changes that are fairly um, light in policy details. 
and there's not the exact same sort of hard work that you're talking about that needs to be done in terms of getting people elected to all the sort of unglamorous and unsexy positions of like county administrator and school board member and dog catcher and whatever else. And if there's a if if the left is supposed to offer not just uh, sort of policy for how to change things, but also a method of interpreting things. This sort of view that like you get your guy into the White House and then everything is suddenly quote unquote better strikes me as profoundly unleft wing, right? Because you're supposed to take into account social currents, economics, all sorts of other things. It's like power's not just magical bluntly, right? And uh, the fact that recently, right. and not to like show my hand here too much, but uh, I know that uh, Sanders has said that he would not campaign for down-ticket Democrats if he took the nomination, which is like unprecedented, right? I mean, this is what the major, what the, the nominee for the presidency is supposed to do, is the campaign for governors, senators, representatives, mayors, whatever else, and so on. And the fact that he sees himself separate from that strikes me as not just a, a slight to a party that admittedly he's not been a member of for very long, uh, but also shows a misunderstanding from a left-wing perspective of how power actually operates. Uh, and this sort of like nebulous discussion of revolution, you're precisely right. You don't have a revolution without foot soldiers. You don't have like one 76-year-old man or whatever single-handedly enacting those kinds of sweeping changes. Maybe it's probably not too subtle to see where I fall on a lot of that. <laughs> Uh, but the, the rhetoric is interesting to me, and I think you're right. There's a similar type of uh, maybe fetishizing of the individual as an agent for radical change on both sides there, even if the things they want to have changed are obviously you know, very, very different. Uh, yeah, if I were to add anything in particular to that, I'd, um, just something that uh, came to mind is um, that uh, writer, that particular writer I mentioned earlier, uh, Kevin Williamson, who... Um, calls himself a conservatarian which is not a not a label I would own but I still find his perspective on things very um bracing and uh entertaining at the same time uh, he had this great rant a couple of years ago about the uh, sort of pageantry that surrounds the state of the union address in particular and he he goes on in this really great uh, sort of hyperbolic style about how um unbefitting a republic it is to have this sort of annual um, royal pageant and not and he's not uh, he, he sees this as sort of emblematic right it's not just the state of the union address it's just sort of the way the the entire office of the president has sort of assumed this man, you know almost heraldic mantle mainly over the last couple of decades but over the last really 100 years or so um, he, he notes it as not coincidental that it was Woodrow Wilson who uh, reintroduced the practice of delivering the State of the Union address in person as opposed to just sending a letter which is what most previous presidents had done uh, but all of this but all of this feeds that popular level delusion frankly that uh, the president can basically do what he wants uh, that if we can just get our guy into office he's going to you know wave a wand you know the way y'all were uh, describing it just a minute ago and fix whatever problems happen to obsess us at a given time. And you see this rhetoric in, you know, Barack Obama's campaign back in the day, and of course, you know, even moving beyond that to George W. Bush's uh, campaign in the year 2000, because he's coming on after eight years of the Clintons. 
And so he was supposed to be able to magically undo a lot of what the Clintons had done. And, you know, Clinton, the first Bush, Reagan, you know, all, all of these, uh, Jimmy Carter, you know, during the fuel crisis, that kind of thing. Uh, it's just this, become this trend. It's It's all part of this sort of public obsession with the power of the president, who, constitutionally speaking, is not supposed to wield that much power and that much influence. Um, not not to pick on President Obama here, he just happens to be the most recent example of this, but I think last year they actually publicized his NCAA bracket. I mean, I, I don't really need to know what the president thinks about college basketball. Uh, but there's an interesting aspect there as well of uh, that celebrity culture that we've already alluded to several times. Uh, the office of the president has already, in many ways, become a reality TV show. Back in the glorious early days of internet video, uh, someone on President Bush's staff who didn't apparently have enough to do actually published a series of video weblogs uh, from the point of view of Barney, the president's Scottish Terrier. And, you know, that that's that's cute and all, but, you know, this is, you know, something that's being done on, uh, you know, the the administration's time and on the taxpayer's tab, you know, to get videos of Barney wandering around the White House. Um, so, in, in a way, Donald Trump is just, uh, in some way, just the final iterate. well, I don't want to say final, that's a little bit too dour, but the final iteration, or the most recent iteration in this evolution we've seen toward a openly, you know, reality TV president. That's something I thought of earlier as well. Um, I would love to hear what Neil Postman would have to say about all this. I mean, he he was writing Amusing Ourselves to Death back in the 80s and was just flabbergasted that a movie star had become president. Uh, and, and anyway, if, I don't think you have to be too much of a fan of Reagan to intuit that he at least had some kind of substance behind him as opposed to someone like Trump. Um, yeah, if I could have a if I could have a conversation with any one dead person right now, it would probably be Neil. No, no, um, I, you're right. I, I'm glad you tied that knot back to the whole reality TV metaphor. I mean, the, not only is we said before, not only is the presidential race um, a, a pageant of some sort that's you know put on for money. I mean, these campaigns cost so much to put on because they're paying media outlets basically <laughs> to uh, to cover them, and and this is. Uh, the, the, that part of the money system is what's driving them. And so it even filters into the office uh, uh, to a, an alarming degree, this kind of cult of celebrity that um, really kind of gets in the way of the purpose of government. Uh, and, and we kind of, I think, too easily rest on uh, symbolic victories that, that don't, you know, have any kind of payoff at the end because there's no substructure underneath those victories to actually do the work. Oh, I was, I was going to say, I, I think in the Sanders campaign, too, especially one of the things that's been interesting for me to see is how this kind of uh, celebrity fetishization has um, sort of emerged in this particular campaign as well, because it seemed that when Sanders first announced his run, whatever, nine months ago, part of his appeal was that he was, he was not seemingly a celebrity, right? Like, he was sort of like rumpled right. whole guy who seems like he should be in like the CUNY cafeteria, you know, like arguing about Sandinistas or something. <laughs> and uh, and it's been fascinating for me to sort of watch the ways in which he has, uh, uh, his campaign at the very least, has kind of embraced maybe a more uh, celebrity-centric kind of understanding of things, which I think is inevitable once you start becoming 
successful. And of course, if your image is uh, is that you don't have an image, that in and of itself is like a rhetorical strategy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I just I sort of I think it reached like peak uh, absurdity for me about a week or two ago when the uh, the bird landed on his podium. Yeah. Uh, in, in Portland. And it, you know, of course, obviously, it's a thing that happened, right? And that's funny. But the the weird like sharing of images of that, as if he was, you know, Saint Francis or something. It's messianic. Yeah, it was bizarre to me. And like, I'm not blaming him for that, but of course, it's something that his campaign knows to manipulate and it's popular. And I didn't, I didn't get the popularity. Like, I found it kind of like creepy. Now, you know, maybe I'm being hypocritical with this. Eight years ago, I was very much uh, an Obama supporter in the Democratic primary. And certainly, the Obama campaign very kind of casually used those same sorts of images. Maybe, maybe now in my like jaded cynicism or something, I am I am distressed by a tiny bird landing on a podium. <laughs> I, I don't know. There was something about that <laughs> rhetoric that struck me as profoundly like, weird, at the very least. And when combined with just kind of, I don't know if either of you read um, Sanders's interview with the New York Daily uh, Mail today, but it was completely absent of a lot of policy opinions or recommendations on, on anything. And it occurred to me that if this very same interview had been had by George W. Bush, you know, 16 years ago, I and all of my friends would be talking about how ridiculous it was. And it's telling that, like, we're a we're apologizing for it right now. Trump strikes me as a totally different phenomenon, obviously, because it's such a bizarre, over-the-top manipulation of the media that is, uh, in one sense, I think the continuation of these trends, as I've said before, but then also I think is kind of a, a unique and troubling thing which seems to be emerging right now. Kind of a hyper-competitive like World Wrestling Federation politics or something. Yeah, I... Uh... Patton Oswald, I think, stole my thunder a little bit with a tweet that I'd been thinking this ever since I saw Mad Max uh, Fury Road that that the main bad guy in that seems like I, I think he called it the Donald Trump origin story or something like that. Um, and, and I and I felt like when I saw the the guitar playing, fire shooting, heavy metal guitarist accompanying the war machine across the desert. Like this is the Trump fan, right? I mean, it just it totally stood out to me. This kind of angry, kind of juvenile, masculine. And I know that's not every Trump fan. I mean, I I, I know I'm painting with a broad brush here, so let the hate mail come. I, I realize that, but um, but yeah, that that to me, I don't know. Just was so striking when I saw that movie finally. That that's what I was thinking. Yeah. If you're a, a Back to the Future fan. Oh, yes, Biff. <laughs> it was actually based on Donald Trump. <laughs> like, I, it bothers me with his appeal, and I'm thinking what Jordan said earlier, I think, um, is that Trump, to me, seems so obviously a phony, right? I mean, the guy is such a snake oil salesman, such a confidence man, and whenever he's going on, yeah. you know, about... I've got the biggest disc of <laughs> I didn't mean it in that way. Uh, you know, but I, I know all the smartest people. I know all the biggest words. I mean, people, like, buy that. And yeah. that seems – it's not just BS. I don't know how much we can swear on it. BS is okay. But, like, 
it's like self-evidently BS. Like I feel like if you met a guy like that in a bar, you'd all be making fun of him for like months after that. I have no idea how he is now in line to be the nominee for the party of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, that is, what does that say about us as a culture? <laughs> that somebody who doesn't just trade in like ridiculous superlatives, but stupid superlatives, right? Is able to capture whatever in the zeitgeist right now. I mean, it's nothing but frustrating to me. Yeah, uh, and I mean that's why we're here, I guess, is because yeah. we're also confused and 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 and, and depressed <laughs> to some degree. Although I was thinking about as you were talking about Sanders, the, a political party, the the Sanders Nistas, maybe. Um, I don't know if that would uh, fly or not, but um, um, the Sander Nista party, maybe. Um, um, I don't know. Anyhow, um, well, guys, uh, I really appreciate this. Uh, this was a, a great talk. I, I appreciate your input and in, in the in the perspectives you bring to this. Um, as we're recording this, uh, Trump seems to be withering a bit in Wisconsin. Uh, we're recording this, I think, as returns should be about coming in now. And, uh, and, and so uh, the looming prospect of a, uh, a contested election is, is really getting big. Um, without this, without those electoral votes, um, it really looks difficult for him to, to wrap it up before the convention. Um, and who knows what happens at that convention if they usher Paul Ryan through somehow, as, as I'm being, uh, as I'm, you know, reading. There's some rumors about um, whatever's going to happen. We're living through a very interesting time, <laughs> and uh, and I'm glad people like you are here to to live through it with me. Yeah. So, uh, Ed, and Jordan, do you guys have any final thoughts? Um, no, I mean, I don't. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, it's one of those things where I've written about Trump several times in columns in the past. Uh, and I think, like a lot of us, I'm endlessly fascinated with him in the kind of this uh, obscene, disturbing car crash kind of way. Uh, but at the same time, like, I really hope this time <laughs> next year, like, we don't have to still be talking about him. Yes. Like, I feel like uh, something about it. Just naturally Sully's <laughs> conversation or whatever. The necessary evil to have to explain him uh, at this point, I think. Yes. Uh, Jordan, do you have anything? Oh, man. Um, I mean, we, we've been talking about this over an hour, and I, I really feel like we're just beginning. There's so much else that could be said. Um, I, I will say I was... Um, you know, in your in your show notes, uh, in the introduction, you were kind of talking about how you know it's, uh, the actual process of witnessing Trump's rise has sort of taken the starch out of you. And um, I would also, I would definitely agree. I've I've actually had to. Uh, I just came back from my school spring break and spent a lot of this morning trying to kind of play catch up so I could informatively discuss this topic um, this evening. And uh, reading all that stuff really reminded me of why I've been trying to. Uh, tune some of it out uh, it, it's 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 pretty exhausting um, um, uh, reading the show notes again uh, I, I was really looking forward to how it was you were going to tie Mad Max into this thing because uh, it not really occurred to me but then you know thinking about it just kind of clicked you know we're we're dealing with a warlord with you know a misogynistic warlord with bad hair and an annoying voice um, which uh, I don't know maybe the movie is prophetic um, upon reflection, though, if, if I guess if I had to conclude with any one profound thing, I would, I would counsel myself f first of all, um, 
not to be too dismissive of what we're witnessing. I mean, it is very easy to um, kind of look at the Trumpkins and just kind of wave them off as you know lunatics or whatever. But uh, I, I, as reprehensible as some of Trump's ideas are, as his uh, policies, you know, insofar as he has policies, uh, as reprehensible as they are, um, I think it's a mistake to look the other way or to just wave it off or just write it up as you know just sort of ravings. Uh, some, something very big is happening. It's going to be very interesting. And um, underneath all the, the nastiness, I think uh, some of Trump supporters um, do have legitimate grievances. Um, not, you know, the anti-immigrant stuff, not the, uh, you know, kick all the Muslims out stuff. But uh, uh, they, they sense that there's a problem and their solution, I think, is entirely wrong. Uh, but th- there are problems there that need addressing. Um, just from my own perspective, though, I think a lot of those problems uh, have to be solved from, you know, within hearts and from the ground up, uh, spe- especially if we're going to try to undo some of the things that have made the office of the presidency something um, desirable for a person like Donald Trump. All right. Well, fellas, thanks a lot. I think I'm going to try and send us out on uh, the great uh, Living Color song cult of personality much of what we were talking about uh reminded me of that song so i think i will uh <laughs> uh play us out as bill o'reilly like to say on uh, uh with that song and uh, we'll talk to you guys next time thanks <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Sectarian Review. Download us again next month for another hour of criticism, reviews, and opinion. In the meantime, check out our Facebook page and send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Eternal thanks to Kristen Philippic, the trepid press liaison. Until next time, remember the words of Kafka, don't despair, not even over the fact that you don't despair. Bye. <laughs>